0: This is Healthcare Policy Unpacked, a podcast exclusively for Health Plan Alliance members produced in partnership with Spring Street Exchange and Policy Insider, Chris Condolucci. Greetings Alliance members. I'm Dennis Bolin and I'm joined by Chris Condolucci. Chris, I always look forward to our monthly conversations. Thanks for being here.
1: Yeah, it's always fun joining you, Dennis, and I love talking about healthcare policy and uh, all the other issues that we know that our members care about. Well, we've got
0: a lot on our plate once again, Chris. So, our listeners are going to have a case of deja vu all over again, because I want to start with the topic of reconciliation. You've written extensively about the process in your biweekly briefs. So, before you say, you know, been there, done that, the reconciliation process continues to come up in the news time and time again whether it's you know what physical infrastructure social service infrastructure even election reform my take is that it's still important because a 50-50 senate is a long way from a 60-40 senate necessary to pass legislation routinely And, you know, we have several recent examples, including the January 6th commission of of, of what the Biden administration and congressional Democrats can and, you know, importantly, cannot do. So reconciliation keeps coming up as a means to an end. So, Chris, take us through it yet again, but with a new spin, given the context of recent events and especially looking forward.
1: Yeah. And let me take it all in steps. Because, again, the legislative process in the Senate is complex in and of itself. Then when you add another process, which is part of the Senate's legislative process, which here is the reconciliation process, it just gets that much cloudier, that much muddier, that much more difficult to understand. So the first and foremost step here is to pass legislation through the Senate you need 60 votes. There's an exception to that general rule where the majority party can still pass legislation, can still pass its policy priorities. Here, bypassing the 60 vote requirement, which is oftentimes a very difficult requirement to meet. And Dennis, as you indicated, in this particular Senate, we have a 50-50 split, which pretty much takes out any opportunity of getting 60 votes to pass anything through the normal process. Even when the majority party has 55 seats or even 59 seats, oftentimes it's difficult to get that last 60th vote to move legislation along. And so the majority party finds themselves not being able to pass their policy priorities. But again, they can use an exception to the rule, an exception to this 60 vote process that I mentioned, and that's this reconciliation process, which, you know, only requires a 51 vote majority. Now, I won't go into detail uh, more about the process because we just wanted to lay that first step out. But I will say there are certain conditions that must be met in order to enjoy a 51 vote threshold as opposed to the normal 60. But that's the first step, right, Dennis? And we've been talking about that step and those two processes since really the beginning of this year. And I don't want to keep going back to this well, as you you had mentioned, but because the reconciliation process and this means to an end, which you really hit the nail on the head when you mentioned it that way, keeps coming up in the news. And why does it keep coming up in the news? Well, again, Biden administration and congressional Democrats early in the year wanted to pass a COVID stimulus package. In this case, it was called the American Rescue Plan. Well, they couldn't get 60 votes to pass it through the regular Senate uh, process. So they went through the reconciliation process to get 51 votes, and the rest is history. Well, as we've also discussed, Dennis, through our conversations as well as in our briefs, um, there could be another opportunity for congressional Democrats and the Biden administration to pass a reconciliation bill, for example, transportation infrastructure, maybe the American Families Plan, two plans that we discussed in our last podcast and we've discussed in our briefs. But right before Memorial Day, the Senate parliamentarian, who is the umpire of the Senate rules and determines what legislative processes the majority party can utilize to pass legislation said to congressional Democrats and in particular in the Senate that you can't pass another reconciliation bill between now and September 30th. And that takes away an opportunity for the congressional Democrats and Biden administration to pass something like a transfer trace and infrastructure bill or the American families plan before the fourth quarter of this year. So really what that means is it leaves the Biden administration and the congressional Democrats with only one opportunity to pass a reconciliation bill or a bill through the reconciliation process, pass it through 51 votes. You have only one more opportunity between now and the end of 2021. And the last thing I'll say, Dennis, and we've talked about, this process or this evolution of how the Biden administration, congressional Democrats could enact something through a reconciliation bill, which is something that can be done in the fourth quarter of 2021, which is something that we expect to see. And it's something that Dennis, you and I will continue talking about in our next segment here. But what it means is we have all of these policy priorities, that the Biden administration, congressional Democrats would like to pursue, are they going to be in a position where they're going to have to jam everything into one big reconciliation bill to be acted upon at the end of the year? And I think that might indeed be the case. Chris, thanks. That
0: helps a lot. And it puts it into some context. I want to Keep going down this path just a little bit more, if you'll allow me, because it sounds like you're saying not only is it a process issue, but it's also a priority issue and a political issue that Biden and the Democrats have to deal with as well. So if they're limited on the use of reconciliation, where does that leave health care reform? Is healthcare care going to be on the outside looking in? I'll remind our listeners that you raised that issue, I think, on a recent brief. If I recall, you mentioned that they may put healthcare reform off. So does that mean that Biden and the congressional leaders will just kind of bid their time for healthcare reform in 2021? Are there going to be pressures for them to do something this year before the 2022 elections?
1: Yeah, and those are all great questions. And I could see at this stage of the game, where we are in 2021. I could very well see healthcare reform being pushed off and used as a campaign issue for the 2022 midterms. And to your point, Dennis, we did write on this in uh, one of our recent policy briefs, where we suggested that this could be the reality. So let me take a step back to also just address your point. And again, it's something that you and I have talked about, Dennis, and it's something that we've talked on our podcasts in the past. We first started with, Hey, we think that healthcare is going to be acted upon, healthcare reform is going to be acted upon in the fourth quarter of 2021, where it was going to be run through a reconciliation bill, 51 votes, all the stuff that I said previously. Then we came into the first quarter of this past year, of this year, 2021, and the Biden administration, congressional Democrats chose to use one of their reconciliation chits, as I refer to it, the reconciliation bills for the American Rescue Plan, which they successfully enacted into law. And then we were faced with, well, that then means that the Democrats and Biden administration are likely going to throw health care reform, infrastructure, American Families Plan into one big reconciliation bill and process that in the fourth quarter of 2021. Then, as I mentioned just previously, we heard this talk of another reconciliation bill, another bite at the apple, which would then allow the Biden administration and congressional Democrats to actually move transportation infrastructure under one bill, and let's say American Families Plan and healthcare under another. Well, what I inartfully tried to explain earlier, if the second Reconciliation bill is off the table, and Biden administration and congressional Democrats only have one more reconciliation bill to enact in the fourth quarter of this year, and they want to enact the transportation infrastructure. They want to enact the human infrastructure, and they also have healthcare reform. Wow, are they really going to be able to pass such a large and far-reaching, far-sweeping, cost a lot of money reconciliation bill? Question mark. And a lot of us now here in D.C. are saying to ourselves, you know what? It doesn't look like that kitchen sink type of reconciliation bill is going to materialize. So then what are the priorities? Well, transportation infrastructure is clearly a priority. The American Families Plan appears to be a huge priority. So does that mean healthcare reform is on the outside looking in to the point you just raised, Dennis? And I think we're coming to the conclusion that it very well could be. And the last thing I'll say, Dennis, is one of the things that's guiding us in our thought on where healthcare reform might be used as a campaign issue and be on the outside looking in is because the Democrats have successfully used healthcare as a campaign issue time and time again. And this midterm election is going to be a very, very difficult one for the Democrats They will likely pick up seats in the Senate, but the Democrats could very well lose the majority in the House of Representatives. And if they do, then any chance of eliminating the filibuster in the Senate, which is something that's been um, also discussed in the news, would go out the window if we have split government for the last two years of the Biden administration.
0: Well, you know, Chris, you pointed out several things there. And this has real world implications for those of us that work in healthcare. So it's really going to be interesting to watch how the administration deals with process in the reconciliation process, how they deal with the political strategy side of it. And then how are they at bringing the American people along behind them to support them, especially as we go into an election year? So thanks for helping me sort through that. I really appreciate that. I want to take a slight turn, pivot away from this reconciliation conversation. An Alliance member asks about President Biden's recently released budget blueprint. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to touch on that. I think blueprint is a very apt term because we know that any budget released by any president or administration is never what really gets acted on or let alone put through Congress. Yeah. So, you know, instead, the budget, you know, is basically a tool that they use to announce, you know, what their priorities are, uh, their policy changes, uh, funding that they need for enforcement. So let me throw in a complication here. Any budget discussion has to cover not just how the money is spent, but also how revenues are raised. So there's a question in my mind of how federal funding is still available through the various COVID stimulation packages might be used. So what are some of the things that we should be paying attention to here when it comes to the budget? I'll just throw out a wide open question, and you can take it any direction that you want. What should we know about the budget blueprint, and uh, what should we be watching for?
1: Yeah, and it's a tough question to answer because it's almost like answering a question in the abstract. And really what I mean by that is, and you alluded to it, Dennis, the president's budget is simply a blueprint. Any president's budget, not just limiting it to the President Biden here, any president's budget never gets acted upon by Congress. Instead, the White House uses the budget as a way to message or communicate the policy priorities of that particular administration. But it also serves as a purpose of kind of saying, well, look, you know, our federal department's um you know, need funding. And they need funding to pursue the policy priorities that we, that our administration wants to pursue. And so that is somewhat telling um, again with regard to where this administration wants to go from or where an administration wants to go from a policy perspective. And in particular, this administration actually increased, for example, increased the budget for the Department of Health and Human Services by 23%. That's a significant, significant increase relative to any increases we've seen for fundings of federal departments. Yeah, we've seen funding reductions in certain cases by one administration and the other administration comes in and re-ups it, so you have a, a higher percentage. But here, HHS is always pretty much well-funded and this administration says, you know what? We need to even dial up the funding to, to a, a much larger extent. And, and wh- why, obviously, are we seeing the more significant funding there? Well, healthcare is a priority for this administration, not only from a policy perspective, but also just uh, continuing to uh, react to the COVID, um, the COVID pandemic and the continued distribution of vaccines, uh, public awareness, et cetera funding for NIH research, funding for the FDA and drug approvals. So all of the above there is kind of what you see in the budget blueprint, at least as it relates to healthcare, why I'm focusing on that portion here. But again, it is simply a blueprint. Congress doesn't have to agree with uh, the Biden administration's 23% and the allocation of the money. But again, we now know where the Biden administration wants to go. Not to say we didn't, no, before. Now, you did mention, uh, Dennis, that there was a ton of funding that came through the various COVID stimulus packages dating back to 2020. And actually, in the most recent stimulus package, really the American Rescue Plan that was enacted back in March that I keep referring to, it included billions of dollars for states and local communities And there are questions uh, among members and others of how do you access that money? And really, to be honest with you, the administration has really yet to give uh, specific detail on not only how the state and local governments are going to access that money, um, it's likely going to be provided in more or less almost a, 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 a block grant. And then the question comes down to How is that state and local government going to disseminate and utilize and put to use that funding that they just recently got through the American Rescue Plan? And all of that's an open question. But I say I'll say this last thing and then uh, conclude is if you're a particular member out there or you know someone or you're you're tied into your local community and or your state politics. And you feel that there's a specific way to spend that money, you must engage your state and local regulators, representatives, elected officials to get access to that money and or suggest where that money should go or how that money should be spent. That's really the process right now, because we haven't really been given a a prescription for what the process is for spending that money and accessing it.
0: So this sounds like something that we really want to keep up on uh, and not just sit on the sidelines, but make sure, you know, that we're up to speed as the budget progresses. You know? Agreed. So if we've got time, Chris, I've got one more topic I want to cover. How's that sound?
1: Yeah, let's hit one more topic before we conclude. Okay.
0: Well, I wanted to touch base on another topic that we've covered before. But in this case, it's something that's actually been enacted into law, and that's the No Surprises Act. In that act, Congress included a transparency-related provision, and this provision has two sides of it, if I can take just a second and make sure that I have this right, so you may need to correct uh-huh. me. But but one side is that it requires medical providers and the owners of a provider networks to share Medical pricing and health claims data with employers, whether they're sponsoring fully insured or self insured plans. And then the other side of the provision is that it requires those medical providers and networks to share pricing and quality of care information with insurance issuers, especially those that uh, I think specifically are selling individual market plans. So this sounds kind of complicated. To me, and frankly, the provisions are anything but transparent, if I can say that, or, or simple. So, mm-hmm. can you help explain these transparency provisions?
1: Yes. Yeah, so let me boil it down, you know, this way, and and I'll even kick it off just by saying, you know, this particular transparency provision that that we're, we're going to go through, or that I will go through in Dennis, that you just touched on. Was included in the No Surprises Act that was enacted at the end of last year. It's just a provision that hasn't really gotten a lot of attention. And it's one of the reasons why, as you and I have been discussing what we want to talk about, I thought it was definitely appropriate to talk about this particular issue because, again, not a lot of people are talking about it. And we know our members are very interested in transparency related issues. So, what the heck are we talking about? Well, in the No Surprises Act, there's a provision that says, Medical providers and owners of provider networks, you must share medical pricing data and claims data with employers who are sponsoring either a fully insured group health plan or a self-insured group health plan. And let me stop there to say, Dennis, I believe that you're aware of this and you and I have even discussed it and our members are fully aware of it there are, is an issue as it relates to data sharing. And there's an issue relating to the transparency of medical prices as well as health claims, because oftentimes that data is not readily shared with other stakeholders in the system. And what I mean by other stakeholders in this context is a sponsor of a group health plan. And Congress felt that, in the interest of increasing transparency that medical providers as well as owner provider networks should indeed share that pricing and health claims data with the plan sponsors who again are part of the system and so congress acted and said you must medical provider and owner provider share this information and you are prohibited from restricting the sharing of that information through a contract, through any agreement that the medical provider and or owner of the provider network might enter into with that employer plan sponsor. Now, you also said there's kind of another aspect to this. If you are an insurance carrier, insurance issuer who's selling insurance in the individual market, well, sometimes you similarly can't get the pricing and the health claims data that you might need for plan design purposes, for plan administration purposes, for developing you know, innovative, innovative programs, either a value-based insurance design plan, or even what we might see in the future as a standardized plan that might come in through uh, through regulations later on this year. Well, Congress said that the insurance issuer here should be able to access that pricing, and in this case, Uh, quality of care information, and that the medical provider and the owner of a provider network cannot restrict, through contract with this insurance issuer, the sharing of that data. So again, it's all in line with trying to increase transparency of pricing and claims data, and in the case of individual market plans, quality of care information, which Remains to be seen how this administration is going to implement that provision, which is another reason why we wanted to raise it here and know that we are going to be on top of this particular provision to report back to everybody. And we can you and I, Dennis, can talk about it uh, in more detail uh, as the year and the rest of the uh, administration, the next four years go along.
0: Chris, thanks for bringing it up to our attention here today because we've got to keep on top of this. It's got real world implications for us that provide healthcare insurance. Sometimes our system owners aren't the best positioned when it comes to to pricing issues. So this can get really tricky. So thank you for uh, keeping in touch and uh, continuing to uh, keep us on top of this information. And as always, Chris, your insights are invaluable. The fact that we keep coming back to some of these issues as we did today underscores the fluid environment that I think we're in and that details continue to evolve. So thanks, Chris, for the latest updates that we covered today and also for keeping us informed through your biweekly email briefs. I just I really appreciate those. I get a lot out of them. Thanks.
1: Yeah, it's always fun joining you, Dennis, and having a conversation together about these fun issues, as I think everybody can tell. I'm really passionate about these issues. I know you are. I know your members are. And I look forward to doing it all again in about a month.
0: That sounds great. And as I sign (laughs) off here to our listeners, send me your topic ideas or raise them on the discussion forum. And Chris and I will cover them next month. And uh, in the meantime, Chris, I look forward to joining you at our quarterly policy forum in June, along with our colleagues from Spring Street Exchange. So until then, it's been great once again, Chris, to talk with you. Take care,
1: everybody. Thanks for listening.
0: We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. Until then, keep an eye on your inbox for the next issue of our policy brief. To engage in a live Q&A with Chris Condolucci and our friends at Spring Street Exchange, be sure to register for our upcoming policy forum. To learn more, visit healthplanalliance.org. See you next time on Healthcare Policy Unpacked.